Good morning, St. Albans Vineyard. My name is Paul Holland, and I'm in Serbia on the internship this year, the discipleship year. I'm married to Cara, and um, we've been married um, four years, we've known each other for six years. And I just want to say that my wife is the most beautiful woman. She actually won the award for the most beautiful woman in the world for the last six years. I know this because I'm the one that's given it to her. We have two children. We have two children. Uh, we have Paulie, my son, who's 15 years old, and we have a little baby together, uh, Gabriel, who's uh, five, going on 25 or something. But he's just an absolute awesome baby, and it's a real privilege to have him. And he keeps us on our toes. Now, Chris has been doing... Can I have the um, screen up, please? Chris has been doing the Jonah Files. We've got to chapter two. I'm only going to speak partly on one part of one verse. Because today, I'm going to tell you my testimony. I'm going to tell you my story. And the title of this talk today is, I went down to the pit, but God raised me up. Jonah went down to the pit. He went down to the belly of the whale or the great fish. He went down to the very bottoms of the sea. He went down into Hades, hell. Essentially, he died. He was disobedient to God and he went in the opposite direction. He went towards Tarshish instead of going where he should have gone. And God allowed him to be swallowed by that fish. And it, for all intents and purposes, it killed him. Before he died, he prayed prayer. And God answered that prayer. Can I have um, the verse up, please? This is Jonah 2, verse 6, part B, the second half of that verse. And it say, simply says this, You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. My testimony is that I went down to the pit but God raised me up. I became a very serious alcoholic and drug addict. And that doesn't mean just recreationally playing with it. That doesn't just mean at the weekends. I ended up with such a strong addiction that no matter what happened to me, I kept on using, kept on drinking. No matter where it took me, it kept on using. I kept on drinking, kept on dealing, kept on buying, kept on selling, kept on getting more. And it was from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. And back through the next day, the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. Time and time again. Now, there's three things here since I've been at Vineyard that I've been told. And these three things encapsulate this morning's talk. I was being prayed for. He'd heard my story. And this guy said, Paul, Satan has really had a good go at you. He's really tried to destroy you. Later on, I was being prayed for. And this guy had a picture of me, and he said, Do you know, I see Jesus running away from you. I see Jesus running from you. Because God wants you to be a God chaser. God wants you to chase after him. And it's a beautiful picture. There's joy in that picture. And then the third and final one, the most recent one, and this is going to become very important in the talk, was they were praying for me and showed, God showed them a picture and he said, I see your right leg and there's a great big hole in it. I can see right through your leg where your leg should be and it's not there. It's like somebody's taken a great big gash out of your leg. It's a tremendous wound and it's disabled you. But I see Jesus coming and pouring what looks like brown fluid into that hole and your leg is starting to heal up, become whole again. Just remember those as I tell you my story. I was born in 1965 Manchester, the good old working class Manchester. 
My mother was an older teenager. She was having an affair with a married man. He left her, and she went to work one day when no one knew that she was even pregnant, and she prematurely went into labour. Her parents, my grandparents, when they met her at the hospital, said, that child is not coming home. And that is that. End of story. And I didn't. I ended up in care, ended up in hospital and children's homes. But my mum married, had another child. She ended, ended up having four children altogether, two more brothers and a sister. And she chose, this is a bittersweetness part of my story, she chose to adopt me back out of my situation in care. So they went through the adoption proceedings, and between the age of three and four, I went through that proceedings and ended up becoming adopted. Back to my mum. The whole problem was, she was so filled with guilt with what happened, that she had a very cold and distant relationship with me. Excuse me. But my father, who adopted me, never liked me. And that dislike just got more and more intense as I got older. They had three other children. They were very successful children. They did well at school. They were very well adapted and quite successful in so many ways. But I was at the complete opposite. I had bent legs. My knees knocked. My feet hit together when they were turned inwards. I had terrible childhood asthma. And I still have asthma now as an adult. And I had one series of childhood illnesses after another. I was so ill throughout my childhood. I even had serious illnesses like whooping cough. I wasn't successful at school. I struggled to learn to read and write. I struggled to do the normal things. Even at the age of eight, I was still trying to shape the letters. My, my motor skills are so poor. And because of my legs, I used to trip over loads and, and fall and smash my head. I was so clumsy. I was such a disappointment that I think that's part of the reason as to why they ended up choosing to feel like that they had to protect their other children from me. I acted out of anger and pain. I'd suffered rejection at an early age, probably one of the most fundamental forms of rejection a person could go through, being rejected as a child. And it's, it does a lot of damage to a person, rejection does. We all need to feel like that we're accepted and we're loved, and that helps us to put us on the track of just being normal. But I didn't have that. And I acted out of that, and I used to, the one thing that I was good at was I used to fight people, I was a fighter. I'd been a fighter in hospital because I was, I was born so premature, I'd had a fight for life. But of course, that meant my parents had to kind of bolster protection around my, my, their, my other siblings. And that grew. Also, my dad's intense dislike of me grew and grew as well. To the point that during my childhood, he became more and more frustrated, more and more angry, and then that spilled into violence. I ended up getting thrown downstairs, getting dragged upstairs by my hair, getting punched. I remember one time when he was smashing my head against a brick wall. And I looked across, and there was my mum. I thought, she's going to step in. She's going she's to stop this. But she didn't. And as that happened, I just thought, I'm just going to learn to tune out this pain, because I know it's going to happen again and again and again. And it did. My parents had a massive drinks cabinet, a really big drinks cabinet, and one of the things that they did a lot was they had a lot of drink parties. And there was loads and loads of spirits. And I learned as a child that I could go there, I could take a drink, just a, a drop of any spirit, and that would just kill the pain that was inside. 
I was so absolutely miserable. This resulted in something. By the time I was 11, the third year of my middle school, I wasn't even in the last year of middle school, I decided I had to get away. And I made a plan to run away to France. I made a very serious plan. I chose to use very indirect routes so I wouldn't get caught. And in my childish way, I thought, you know, if I get aboard a boat, if I stow aboard a boat and then get across the channel and then get to another country, then I won't ever have to go back. I'll be safe. I was brought back by the police. And I was put into a meeting with the, the heads of school and the headmaster and my parents. And they said to my parents, they said, what is the matter with Paul? What is going on? And they said these words which absolutely destroyed the last bit of trust that was in me. They said, maybe it's because he's adopted and he doesn't know it. They'd chosen as a family to hide the adoption because I was my mother's son and pretend the adoption had never happened. It was too early for me to ever remember the children's home or anything about that. And I just, something slapped in me inside when that happened. And I just got worse and worse in my behaviour, acted out far, far more, became more and more rebellious. And as a teenager, I graduated from alcohol to drugs. And I decided, you know what, the one thing I'm good at, the one thing that I'm successful at, is I can get drunk. Better than anyone else. I can take drugs better than anyone else. I could be a party animal better than anyone else. And I hit into pubs and clubs and raves and the dancing and all that kind of stuff. And there I, I, I found a group of people where I felt at home, I felt accepted. I felt I could belong. They had a nickname for me. Mad, bad, and a little bit sad. That's who I was. That was my identity. I'm going to give you three highlights of some things. I could tell you some other stories, but I'm going to give you three highlights of some things that happened to me by the time I was 25. I tried to see how long using class A amphetamines I could stay awake for and not have to go without any sleep and just party, 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 party. I aimed for eight days, didn't quite make it, but by the end of it, I was completely insane. I was driven myself crazy. And I decided the only way out of it was I had to kill myself. And so I took 120 tablets, 120 paracetamol and codeine, at the very least, and I'm not exaggerating the number, it could have been even more, but I took a lot. And it should have killed me. I went into a three-day semi-coma, in and out of sleeping and sweating and being partly unconscious. Eventually somebody came to my flat, a nurse, a friend of mine, and saw just how ill I was and called an ambulance. I was taken to hospital and I ended up having a massive nervous breakdown. So much so I could barely walk, could barely stand, and my eyes shut down, I had tunnel vision. I was just so ill. But even after that, when I came out of the hospital, that didn't stop me. I just went and just used more and just got more and more into the class A scene. There's a verse in 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 22, that says this. It's like a dog that goes back to its vomit, like a washed sow that goes back to its own filth and muck. That's what my addiction was like. In the using of class A's, I eventually lost the home that I was living in, and I became homeless in my middle to late, later 20s. And I lived on the streets. And I used to beg. I used to be the one that would beg outside places like Sainsbury's and, and Tesco's as the shoppers went past, trying to get some money. I was 
for some people, the scum of the earth. And I met other people that were in a similar situation. I became friends with two really good, good guys, Paul and Gavin, Gab the Jav. And he was called Gab the Jab because he had been sticking the needle in his arm since he was a child. And we stuck together. We were going to sort this problem out together. And we ended up, through probation, getting a one-bed flat in Shaftesbury, North Dorset. And that flat, very quickly, overnight, just became a drug den. More and more of the other drug users in the local town just came and graduated there. And we dealt drugs to them. We made our living that way. It was a serious place. There was a lot of very serious drugs going on. And we just lived out the party lifestyle. Just to give you one little uh, indicator of what that's like, I used to have two guys just come and sleep on my living room floor, and they were travellers. And I nicknamed them the travellers who didn't travel, because they never went anywhere. They just <laughs> stayed in our flat. <laughs> Gavin, one time, was absolutely crying like a baby on my shoulders, just wetting my shoulder with his tears. And he was saying to me, Paul, I can't stop. I can't stop. Please make it stop. Please make it go away. I don't want to do this anymore because it was just day in, day out, day in, day out. Get drugs, buy drugs, sell drugs, use drugs, get drugs, buy drugs. It just goes on and on and on without end. And he was crying on my shoulder, just wetting my shoulder. And all I could say to him, because I was a drug addict just like him, all I could say was, Gavin, I can't help you. There's nothing I can do to help you, mate. Sorry. And Gavin's going to become important in the story a little bit later. One time we had a very, very strong batch of heroin. So strong. We were all users, but it was so strong. A whole group of us went into overdose, or very close to overdose. I ended up putting three guys, including Paul, into the recovery position before I went blue myself, collapsed, but there was no one else around. If I'd gone more and more serious, no ambulance would have been called, and I would just shut down, and I would have just died. But I woke up the next day, really ill, and the very first thing I did was I vomited so hard, it was almost like it was coming out of my ears, it was so hard, where the body was trying to expel out the poison. We then had a dry season. We couldn't get any gear for love or money. I spent that day in bed, freezing, shaking, rattling, in pain. Come late at that night, but around about midnight, I just had an intense feeling, not, not quite a voice, but maybe something like that, an intense feeling that said, you've got to get out of here, you've got to go, you've got to leave now and don't come back. And really that emphasis was at the end, don't come back. And so I, I walked out of that place, I walked down the road, I turned one corner and I knocked on a mate's door, Pat. And, and Pat is now, we're great friends, she's a beautiful Christian woman, and she's like a second mum to me. And my, my older son, Paulie, calls her Nanny Pat. And she did the most beautiful thing, she let me in. And she let me stay. She let me keep on her sofa for a while, and then she gave me a room in her, in her flat. And I never went back to that place. And do you know, three days later, that den, drug den, which is also going to become important later on in the story, got closed down and everyone got kicked out. 
If I stayed there, I would have ended up being homeless again, and the whole cycle would have just gone round. I got stronger, I used the 12-step program, I went to NA and AA, I eventually got work, I started working on the roads. And then I met this woman who's, who's Paulie's mum, and we quickly got together, got married, and then had a baby, my son Paulie, who's, who's now 15. So he was born in 97, in the summer. And my wife, at that time, was a daughter of an alcoholic. Her father was an ex-marine that, when he got drunk, got so absolutely aggressive and violent, and used to throw her, her mum like a little rag doll around the house. She grew up with that. But she had issues herself around drugs and alcohol, and she was impressed that I stopped, so she kind of stopped with me, and we started this relationship, and we had this baby together, and we started trying to have another life. And we lived in, in Shaftesbury, um, in Gilliam, Dorset, Gilliam, sorry, North Dorset. But Christmas, and I don't know why, just something just went wrong in my thinking, I don't know what it was, but Christmas, at the end of 97, I came home with a bottle in my hand and started drinking again. And throughout the next year, like a dog that returns back to its vomit, I started drinking more. I started buying more drugs again. More and more people used to come around and like form that circle of users and we all like laughing and joking, partying and smoking and all the rest of it. And my wife used and drank with me. I lost my job. She ended up working, I ended up staying at home looking after my one-year-old boy who I absolutely adored, absolutely loved. We had such a special bond between us. He used to fall asleep on my shoulder and just chill right out and we were so close. But my wife ended up having to go to work and I looked after him. I stayed at home with a baby, with a bottle and with smoke throughout the whole of that year. And then something happened, which was... In retrospect, I know now it was enough to break me. New Year's Eve, 1998, my wife had enough and she left for her own sanity. And she was going, she was losing herself anyway. She was, she was going to go on to have a massive nervous breakdown herself because of the stuff that she was carrying that was undealt with. But she couldn't take it anymore, she had to leave. And so I faced the beginning of the 1999, with a, and she not only left me, she left her son as well, with a one-year-old boy, with a habit that was starting to kick off again, alcoholism that was starting to get out of control, and a mar marriage that had now failed and was beyond recovery, and then did end up in divorce. I knew I was in trouble, rent was unpaid, the landlord was after me, police were after me for minor offences, debts in the bank, and all I wanted to do was use and drink, and I had a one-year-old child to look after. So, 1999, beginning of that, I made some absolute decisions. I knew fundamentally that I had to change on the inside. Because the problem with a cell that gets washed from its own mud and muck and filth is it's only a cosmetic change. It's not a real change on the inside. Still the same animal, like that dog. It would just return back to its own rubbish. I knew I needed to change fundamentally. I knew that only God could do it, because I tried lots of other ways, and no other way worked. Not even the 12-step program worked in that form of change. 
that I needed. And so at the beginning of 1999, I made some decisions. I went to all the local churches around where I lived, which was North Dorset, which meant Wiltshire, um, Somerset, about six different churches. I got honest with my GP for the first time and really told him what I'd used and what I'd drunk. Right? I got honest, and he referred me on to Collins of February. I got honest with the health visitor, and she became a real source of encouragement and support for us. Right? And there was never a time when she doubted my ability to look after my child, and we were safe. And I went to all these churches. I used to, because I was looking after a very young child, I used to have these long periods of time on my own where I used to pray. And in my diary, I have this massive white wall. It's called, called my white wall of prayer. And I used to pray at that wall. God, if it's real, Jesus, if it's true, will you please come and save me? Because if you don't, I don't stand a chance. Please come. Make the difference in my life. I ended up using something called uh, the minus to plus put Reinhard Bonnke's prayer in it. And then there's a line that says, I come to you, Jesus, with all my sins, all my heartaches, and all my addictions. And I prayed that prayer. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that says that God stores up in his glass our tears. And throughout 99 and most of 2000, do you know, nothing fundamentally changed for me. I just had to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. I didn't even feel like God answered any of my prayers. And there's a little bit of truth in this. The most I could get was around about three months complete abstinence and clean time. Sometimes it would only be a couple of weeks. Often it would only be a few days. But my addiction was arrested to some point. And I went to all these churches. I became infamous in these churches. They knew me as the guy with the kid who had some issues that they knew they needed to help. And then, November 1999, sorry, November 2000, something fundamental did happen. Something important did happen. And it's almost to this date. It was November the 5th. I went to a church service in the evening and there was this uh, French minister, this missionary guy, and he preached this sermon and he called people forward for prayer and they all lined up for prayer. I ended up being the last one, but getting on the end of that line. And he went down the line praying for people personally. And he comes up to me and he looks me in the eye and he says, I'm going to pray for you. You must tell me what's in your heart and I'll pray for it. And I looked at my heart and I realised there was absolutely nothing there. I was just so dead. I just went, I don't know, just give me whatever God's got. He went, right, I'll pray for you. And he prayed for me, and under the power, I fell to the floor. But he said, shut up, stop it, get off him, leave him alone. And he wasn't talking to the Holy Spirit, and he wasn't talking to me. I went back to the leaders of the church, and I said, look, I'm in serious trouble, I can't deal with this. They said, don't worry about that. We know some people over in Somerton who are trained in healing people from addictions and alcoholism, Christian rehab. We're going to send you over there. And they did, five days later on a Friday. I went over there, there was two counsellors. And they just said, we've been praying for you all week. And God's spoken to us about you. They've never met me before. They've only met me once since. Enough for me to be able to check out my story of them. And they said, that is exactly how we remember it happening. They said, right, God's told us you've got these things. You need to be set free of these things right now in the name of Jesus. And they prayed in the name of Jesus, and these things went one after the other. Bang, 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 bang. Absolutely no fuss by the name and power of Jesus Christ. 
Then the lady, she prayed for me, this, this kind of prayer, prayer of redemption, I guess, right through from the moment I was conceived, right through my life to present-day adulthood. Beautiful prayer. And then they said, wow, God's just spoken to us again about you. And he's told us, you are carrying a physical infirmity and he wants to heal you. Might, might be the lights, I don't know. <laughs> so that's... So, they sat me in this chair, they were kneeling down, and they showed me that my right leg, remember the right leg, was shorter than my left leg by quite a considerable distance. They said, this is one of the representations of the physical infirmity you've been carrying, God wants to heal you. And they prayed in the name of Jesus, and my bones and muscles just shot forward. As that happened, they fell backwards and went, whoa, the Holy Spirit's all over this guy. And as they said that, the Holy Spirit punched me really deep in the stomach. And all the rubbish that was in me that got knocked out. And as I breathed out, I just felt wave after wave of God's love and mercy and grace and goodness and patience and kindness just filling my heart again and again, washing out all the sin and rubbish that was there, all the shame and all the guilt that was there. But then something else happened. For the first time in my life, and it's happened since as well, I heard the audible voice of God. And God spoke to me and said this. He said, Paul, I love you. I've never not loved you. I've always loved you. And I was just like a little baby, just absolutely sobbing in bits. Well, you loved me then. You loved me then. You loved me when I did that. You loved me when I did that. Yes. And I had the gift for the first couple of years, because I was born again, Christian, saved. On the November the 5th, 2000, I had the gift for the first couple of years of a Christian that every morning when I woke up, I had God's voice reminding me again, I love you, Paul. Love you today. Come on, let's go. It's fundamentally changed. I walked out of that place completely different to how I walked in. And I never went back to drugs or drink again. Today, I won't even touch alcohol. The very next day, some friends of mine, West, beautiful West Indian family, took me to Tottenham, London. They didn't know what happened before because that's from a different church. And they said, come on, you're coming with us. We're going to get you some serious prayer for you and get you sorted out. And I just treasured what God had done the day before. And I, just, I went with them. And I experienced in, in Tottenham my first African worship for the first time. Absolutely amazing. Three, four hours of just constant prayer and worship and going. And then the speaker comes on. It was absolutely amazing. <laughs> The speaker called up. He said, you guys from Dorset, come up here. I want to pray for you. And I was with this West Indian extended family, and they had their grandma with them. He prayed for us, and, and he prayed for the grandma, and her hip popped back into place, and he, she ended up dancing around this, this big church with God TV cameras. And he said this important thing. He said, you must go to the prayer room afterwards and get prayer. Not everyone did. The church was way too big for everyone to fit into the prayer room. I went around about midnight into this prayer room. There was about 20 pastors in pairs praying for people. Two pastors come up to me. They look me in the eye. They say, tell us what's on your heart and I will pray for it. I thought, right, this is it. Either there's nothing there and nothing's happened. It's not true. The first time in my life, I knew who I was. I knew there was something there. My heart wasn't dead. 
I went, I want to be a preacher. I want to be a pastor. And they said, we'll pray for that. They laid hands on me and prayed for me. I hit the floor. They didn't say, shut up, get off, stop it, leave them alone. Instead, they called the other guys over. And about 20 of them circled me with their arms around their shoulders saying, see him, he's going to be a pastor. Next guy would go, yeah, see him, he's going to be a preacher. And next guy would go, yeah. And they spoke calling and commission and mission and purpose over my life. I got up off that floor and I said to them, what must I do next? They said, you must go to Bible college which eventually I did, and I went on to do a theology degree. Three final things. I went down to the pit, but God raised me up. I chose one church. I chose one church, Shaftesbury Christian Centre, for the, the next duration, and I stuck to that church. And they had somebody, some of you might have heard of him, called John Andrews come and teach on the gifts and the power and the healing of the Holy Spirit. He has a distinct healing ministry, right? By the end of the time that he was with the church, he had all these different meetings in the church, the very last one, and this was literally only a couple of months before I was due to go to Bible college, he said, there's somebody here with dyslexia. You've got to come forward now because God wants to heal you. And out of a sea of church, nobody came forward. I was sat at the back and there was this finger of God going, that is you. So I went forward, I didn't really want to, but I went forward, being obedient to God, and he prayed for me, and the whole of my brain, brain just lit up. And there was intense heat down the back of my brain, down the brain stem. Absolutely amazing. And he actually got me to read the Bible for the first time in front of people. One. Second. In my first year of being a Christian, my grandma, who was an old, elderly lady at this point, her, her dad, her, um, my mum's dad, her husband had died previously before, and she was on her own. She slipped in the bathroom with the taps left on, on her own. And she was washed with cold water for hour after hour in that bathroom with no one to help her, and she couldn't get out. Her body went, became absolutely frozen. And on Sunday, just after church, we had a phone call, all the family, you must come to Portsmouth Hospital right now because she's only got hours left to live. We all went there. There was my mum and dad. There was my brothers and sisters. There was my aunt and uncles and cousins. We were all there around her bed. And so that beautiful uh, West Indian family took me over there because I didn't have a car at that time. So I went there. And I really wanted to pray for her. But the whole family was around the bed and nobody wanted to leave her. And eventually, because the West Indian guys had to get back home and I had to leave her. I had to make my goodbyes and go. So eventually, I just prayed for her in front of everyone. This is a family who's seen me high, seen me drunk, seen me crazy, seen me being untrustworthy, and all the rest of it, seen me acting out. What is Paul doing? And I took my grandma's hand and I prayed for her, and she is still alive today. I was able to go to my grandma's um, care home where she lives, a little bit later, and I was able to tell her about what Jesus had done for me. And she said, I'm sorry. And she asked Jesus into her life. She became a Christian there and then. Finally, I told you about Gav the Jav. There's importance for this, <clears throat> because last month in September, I felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to go back to certain places around North Dorset, certain places that I'd been in and used and, and things that happened, certain sins that I'd committed, and pray outside those places, pray outside those buildings. Well, late on a Friday night, in the very darkness of the night, about half past ten, 
I was outside that flat in Shaftesbury, outside the drug den that I'd lived in with, with Paul and Gary and all these other people. And who should walk past? Gavin walks past. We hadn't seen each other for about 16 years. And we recognised each other. Paul! Gavin! Wow! He's got a can of beer in his hand. And he says to me, Paul, I'm just on the way to the hospital. My wife is about to give birth. My wife, Bella, is about to give birth to her fifth child. I'm not on heroin anymore. But I'm still on methadone. I've been for a long time. I still like my drink. I went, Gavin, you've heard about what's happened to me. Let me pray for you. And I prayed for him on, in that street in his hometown. He was born there, outside the place where we did drugs together 16 years before, 17 years before. And the Holy Spirit touched him in a really beautiful way. He went, wow, I'm high without taking anything. Wow. <laughs> and then I said to him, Gavin, would you like to ask Jesus to come in and be your saviour? And he said, yes. And I prayed for him outside that flat where we did drugs together. And he asked Jesus into his life. Became Christian on that spot. I come to you in that prayer. I come to you with all my sins, heartaches and addictions. And I just want to remind you this morning. I went down to the pit. But God, you have raised me up. 